Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day, particularly for one of the presidential candidates. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy. Why is it a great day for him? Well, because he gets to go on the Michael Medved Show today. We'll be speaking with candidate Ramaswamy, who suddenly is talking about a Ramaswamy tsunami. Uh, there are a bunch of polls that show him now running third and being within striking distance of uh, Ron DeSantis. And wouldn't that be something if he takes over as the chief alternative to Donald Trump, uh, takes over that position from Ron DeSantis? We'll be speaking a little bit later today to Vivek Ramaswamy. We'll also be speaking to one of the most thoughtful, articulate, and deeply controversial evangelical Christian leaders in the country, Dr. Russell Moore, who says the church right now, the evangelical church in America, is in deep crisis. Uh, what is that crisis? Well, it doesn't really have anything directly to do with the Hunter Biden story, but that is the dominant story in the news at the moment. Because remember that plea deal that uh, enraged so many conservatives, and particularly the whistleblowers who came before the various House committees and said that uh, there had been tampering with the Hunter Biden case and that he was getting special treatment. There's a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal that's just like a sock in the eye. I mean, it is a powerful piece by Eileen J. O'Connor, who's a former head of the U.S. Justice Department Tax Division. And she says, you'd go to prison for what Hunter Biden did. And she gives examples of lots of people who did go to prison. He may go to prison still, too, because it turns out that today they were supposed to have confirmed that plea agreement. Uh, but that plea agreement, the uh, deal with the prosecutors, has fallen apart. And why? Because uh, when there was a question asked about it by the presiding judge about whether or not this plea agreement that they had tentatively reached uh, meant that uh, Hunter Biden would still be investigated, would still be probed for more of what he has done wrong, uh, and they say, yes, of course, the investigations have to continue. And uh, so his lawyers said basically no deal. This is the way that the that particular breaking news, which is just about an hour ago, uh, how that was described on Fox News. Listen. Well, here we are, John. We now know that Judge Norieka is not going to accept the plea agreement. And as we were talking about just a moment ago, it's got to do. Judge Norieka does not uh, believe that the, she has questions over the constitutionality of that diversion clause uh, of the immunity that Hunter Biden would receive in this deal uh, to not prosecute on the gun charge. Uh, she is not okay with that. So the headline here is she has not accepted the plea deal. That would likely indicate we could be headed for uh, a trial. We have not heard from the prosecution or the defense. Maybe they'll be coming out and talking to us. But a major headline here, what we thought that was starting uh, some three hours
hours ago was going to be a routine plea deal. Hunter Biden, in the early part of, of today's court uh, hearing, said he was prepared to plead guilty to the two misdemeanor tax evasion charges. Not going to happen. Okay, not going to happen. No plea deal. CNN reports a plea deal between President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Uh, Can you imagine how much uh, President Trump would love to have Hunter Biden disappear somewhere, go into a witness protection program and not be an issue anymore? Because this honestly, this could end the Biden presidency. It's it's a very, very serious matter. And it's not just a uh, partisan uh, witch hunt of any kind. Uh, There's serious wrongdoing involved here. A plea deal between President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and the Justice Department is on hold after dramatic court hearing uh, today, this morning. Hunter Biden failed to pay between $1.1 million and $1.5 million in federal taxes. Now, that's not the money that he didn't pay taxes on. That's the taxes he owed. He owed that much money. Uh, that... Um, he had promised he had failed to pay between 1.1 million and 1.5 million in federal taxes before the legal deadlines and was poised to plead guilty to two tax charges with prosecutors agreeing to recommend a sentence of probation but before the original plea could be entered the deal began to unravel and a revised agreement reached during the hearing was not accepted by the judge Uh, The judge is giving, uh, who is a Trump appointee, by the way, the judge is giving uh, Biden and his lawyers and the Justice Department another month to try to negotiate a deal. So they will have that. But uh, just to give you an idea of of what we're talking about here, Eileen J. O'Connor, who under President Bush, she's a Republican. Uh, she was the head of the U.S. Justice Department's tax division from uh, 2001 to 2007. And uh, what she writes is the IRS investigation of Hunter Biden began as an offshoot of an investigation the IRS was conducting into a foreign-based amateur online pornography platform. Think about that. Agents established that for the six years, 2014 through 2019, Mr. Biden failed to report or to pay taxes on perhaps $17.3 million he received from questionable sources. He filed returns several years late, and when he did file them, he claimed as business deductions the cost of his drug dealer's hotel room, call girls, sex club dues, and his daughter's tuition at Columbia University. Uh, Andy McCarthy, a former federal prosecutor, tries to explain the process of the plea bargain that just fell apart. Uh, Here is Andy. This is uh, clip two on Fox. Two things. One, there's a factual basis for the plea. In other words, the government has to be able to establish that they could prove every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant has to establish that he understands what he's accused of. These are the things that he did that meet the the different uh, uh, elements of the offense to make him guilty. 
and that he's pleading guilty not only aware of what the charges are, but voluntarily. In other words, he's not under any pressure of any kind, and there, there's no promises that they haven't uh, flagged for the court that have been made to induce the plea. So that's why uh, it's, a, it's kind of an extensive colloquy. Okay, it is extensive. There's more news today, uh, uh, shocking news about Mitch McConnell, who's uh, 81 years old. Uh, he's uh, right up there with uh, with President Biden. He just had a a very bad moment. It's, it's painful to watch it during a press conference, and he had to be helped away from the podium. Uh, we will get to that. Uh, it's also, interestingly, a birthday for somebody else who's 80 years old, right up there with uh, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden, but a lot more lively. Uh, what a drag it is getting old. Uh, that's uh, what Mick Jagger once sang. Uh, the most senior swinger in town shows a little sign of slowing down. He turns 80 today. Uh, Sinead O'Connor. Uh, the uh, very controversial Irish singer uh, passed away at age 56. And uh, <laughs> just what he needs. Ron DeSantis has uh, fired uh, a staffer uh, who had retweeted video with Nazi imagery. What kind of staffer? And... Uh, and And on the Michael Medved show, uh, satisfaction. I hope that uh, the birthday boy, Mick Jagger, gets some satisfaction today. He's 80 years old. The uh, problem with uh, Mitch McConnell, who's 81, was, uh, as you know, he was in the hospital. He had fallen. He had a concussion. And here he was doing a press conference and uh, uh, immediately he stopped uh, and um, just wasn't able to speak. And John Thune, who's the uh, Republican whip in the Senate, and thank goodness he was there. He stood up, stood in for him. John Thune is a, a, a very fine U.S. senator and a fine Republican leader. Uh, senator from South Dakota, and uh, Mitch McConnell excused himself and uh, uh, with that interruption. Now, what does this mean? Uh, I, I hope it means that uh, Senator McConnell, who has been consistently one of the most useful, one of the most skilled, uh, one of the most responsible Republican leaders. I hope it means that he can uh, return to full health and his position as a Republican Senate leader. And uh, but the um, we don't know. Th this also means anytime you have someone who is almost precisely the same age as Joe Biden. Uh, suffering from a health problem. This is just one of many, many problems that the Biden administration has right now. Uh, the other problem is uh, figuring out 
what exactly is going on with the market. I mean, wild swings on the Dow, which at one point, because of them announcing a, a quarter percent increase in uh, the standard uh, interest rate, uh, the Dow had gone, wow, up almost 200 points. And uh, right now the Dow, it was down a moment ago, but now it's two points. And uh, the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark lending rate by a quarter point, lifting interest rates to their highest level in 22 years. It's the 11th rate increase since the Fed began to lift rates in March 2022 to battle inflation. And comes just one month after the central bank hit pause in order to assess the state of the economy. Uh, Andrew McCarthy on uh, Fox, legal expert on Fox, also a great friend of this show, a former federal prosecutor. He was looking at what happened in the courtroom today with the uh, the deal, the plea deal that was supposed to finish uh, the possibility of uh, Hunter Biden actually going to jail. Well, it didn't get finished. It's just gotten started. It's just uh, uh, an amazing story. Uh, and uh, Andy McCarthy was asked, basically, was this deal uh, that fell apart this morning, uh, much to the chagrin of the White House? I mean, this is a terrible news for Joe Biden. And in fact, I think for the first time, you can really look seriously. There's a possibility he will simply not be able uh, with some of these charges against him and against his Justice Department intervening in the investigation of his son, trying to protect his son. Uh, the uh, This is a very vulnerable president and vulnerable anyway because of uh, low approval ratings. Uh, this is uh, Andy McCarthy on the legitimacy of the deal that has now fallen apart. Listen. Do you not believe this was a legitimate deal? John, the Hunter, the Biden Justice Department cannot ethically investigate the president's son for conduct that the president is implicated in. And if this was legitimate, the attorney general would have done his duty under the regulations and appointed a special counsel. He hasn't done that which is why you get funky stuff like you got someone who's the main subject of the investigation mm -hmm. on one of them, and in the middle of what you say is a continuing investigation, you're taking a plea to him, from him to nonsense. Okay, and uh, Karl Rove uh, speaks about the, the meaning and significance of this moment right now in which we find ourselves. Here's Karl Rove, former a chief advisor to political advisor to President George W. Bush. Yeah, think about this extraordinary moment. We could very well enter the 2024 general election with the Republican frontrunner today, assume he becomes a nominee, in court starting next May over having taken illegally taken documents, the accusation is, from the White House, classified documents, and then shared them with people who didn't have any right whatsoever to be uh, shown classified material. And we could have Hunter Biden, the son of the 
sitting president of the United States being caught up in all kinds of of issues uh, of of trying to solicit money from foreign companies, in part by claiming that you know he was the son of the of the then vice president, now president, and and uh, there's some suggestion that the president the president shared in those proceeds. We haven't gotten any evidence of that. We've had rumors and innuendos and 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 accusations. But this could be an extraordinary election. It's further evidence of why the American people find these two candidates the, the least attractive that we have seen in any election in our lifetimes. Fewer people want the general election to be between Joe Biden and Donald Trump than, than, uh, than we've ever seen. And this is just simply going to make people more turned off on the election and be interesting to see how that all plays out on each respective side. All right, Carl. Okay, uh, when uh, the White House was asked about this today, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press spokesman, uh, she was asked about the president's reaction, and basically she just reported that uh, the president and the first lady love their son. Uh, of course, he's the, step, he's the stepson of, uh, of Jill. His mother died in that terrible accident when Hunter was a little boy. But uh, right now, uh, Hunter's not a little boy. He is in a, a world of trouble and in a world of hurt. And the difficulty here is that even if President Biden never received any of this money, the $17 million that Hunter may have gotten, uh, basically Hunter invoked his father's name. Uh, meanwhile, another potential president... Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy surging in the polls. Joining us moments from now. Are you feeling tired? And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there's a headline in NBC News that says a lot. Uh, the headline says Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, the rise of Vivek Ramaswamy, a long-shot candidate, ascends in the GOP primary. Uh, all of a sudden, there is what his campaign calls a Ramaswamy tsunami. Uh, he's running third in some of the national polls, third right after uh, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, and catching up on the tales of uh, uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, very pleased to meet you on uh, the show. Uh, my big question is, what do you think is behind this surge in your campaign right now? Well, it's good to meet you, Michael. I think the thing that's behind the surge in our campaign is that I'm willing to speak the truth without apology and without constraint. I think the other candidates have an advantage that I don't have, which is large super PACs of large pre-existing mega-donors in the Republican Party propping them up. But that comes with constraints. It ties your hands as to what you can and cannot say on certain issues. By contrast, I'm independent and unconstrained in what I'm able to say on issues ranging from climate change to electric vehicles to bank bailouts to even our policy in Ukraine. I think I've been able to defect from some of the orthodoxies that restrain what the other candidates have to say. The other thing is, I think, Michael, we're in a moment where the Republican Party for a long time has been running from something. Wokeism, gender ideology, a flailing economy, the radical left. And I share those convictions. 
But I'm the only person in this race who's actually leading us to something, to our vision of what it actually means to be an American. That's how I think we actually solve the problems in our country is to fill a moral vacuum of purpose and meaning with a vision of our own, not just tearing down the other side. And I'm finding that that's resonating across the country. Let me ask you about two issues uh, that uh, have uh, been almost untouchable for uh, a lot of the other Republican candidates and your response to those issues. The first one has to do with entitlements and the whole idea of the tremendous national debt and the uh, swelling federal deficit, trillions of dollars. Uh, first, what do we do about Medicare and Social Security that are basically responsible for this orgy of spending we have right now? And then the second issue has to do with the possibility of war with China, which people are deeply worried about. Maybe you want to start with the issue on war and peace. Uh, what do we do to prepare uh, to to use the Reagan approach of peace through strength to uh, avoid a confrontation with China? Yeah, so look, I think it's the right way to phrase it. I think about this as in the lens of a Cold War realist. Unfortunately, there aren't many of those around today, the George Kennans, the Schultzes, the James Bakers. But I'm reviving that school of thought where I want to achieve peace. I want to avoid war. Here's how we do it. First, I would end the war in Ukraine, actually. And that relates to China. I'll tell you how. The deal that I would do to end the war in Ukraine would be one lines of control, would be one that commits that NATO will not admit Ukraine. Those are big concessions to Putin. But I would require something even bigger of Putin in return which is that he exit his military alliance with China. That's actually the dirty little secret that almost nobody in either party talks about. The Russia-China military alliance is the single greatest threat that we face from a military perspective today. Russia has the largest nuclear stockpile, hypersonic missile capabilities. China has a navy with more ships in the, in the South China Sea and more ships, period, than the U.S. Navy. What we can have an opportunity to do is by pulling Russia out of China's camp, that forces Xi Jinping to think twice before he actually goes after Taiwan. That is how we deter conflict, deter a Chinese invasion, while avoiding war over it. And I do think Taiwan is a higher priority for the U.S. than Ukraine, because that's where the global semiconductor supply chain begins. And so I'm just scratching the surface there, but it gives you a sense of how I think. We Again, what about what about the issue of in, in, what about the issue of entitlements and overspending and the national debt? Well, we, no doubt we have an overspending problem in this country, but I think the right next step is actually to restore GDP growth, economic growth in this country. Right now, we're slated to grow at less than one percent GDP growth. For most of our national history, we've grown at over four plus percent GDP growth. I'd say drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear, put people back to work by no longer paying them to stay at home, reform the Fed, shut down the administrative state that's the source of many unlawful regulations on businesses. That'll put us back to four plus percent GDP growth. And then I think we build the trust base in this country to say that, okay, then we can have a conversation about actually rationalizing spending. That's, I think, the missing link right now is we're having that discussion about spending cuts from a position of weakness. 
We need to have that discussion from a position of economic strength. And to directly answer your question on Medicare, I think the right answer is not to pursue the road of cuts to seniors and what they benefit from now. To the contrary, we need more people benefiting from a Medicare Advantage-style model. Only a third, less than a third of people on Medicare or Medicare-eligible people are on Medicare Advantage. Turns out we spend less, the taxpayers spend less money, but people actually also get better care because instead we save money by avoiding the bureaucracy of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So that is really where I think a lot of the root cause of our problems is, is in the federal bureaucracy. And I've said that I will be the president who has the best understanding of how to actually shut it down. That's how we you've, uh, you, you've gone on record for shutting down the education department. Is there another federal program, major federal program, other than the Department of Education that you would just eliminate? I have a growing list of government agencies <laughs> that we will eliminate on strong legal authority. The U.S. Department of Education, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the IRS, the ATF, the FBI, the CDC. <clears throat> These are all agencies that I think have outlived their purpose if they ever had one. If you if you eliminate the IRS, would you still collect income taxes? Yes, we would fold a subset of those employees into the U.S. Department of Treasury. I've laid out detailed plans for each of these. Even with the FBI, there's 15,000 people who still do useful work on the front lines as agents. But we don't need the separate bureaucracy with the 35,000 of them performing these back office functions that result in corruption. So I would move those 15,000 to the U.S. Marshals or to the Drug Enforcement Agency or to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network underneath the Treasury. And so, believe me, these aren't slogans to me. These are defined plans that we will get in there and execute on. But this is how we restore accountability and true integrity back to a federal government that is corrupt, bloated, and badly broken by that fourth branch, the administrative state. Uh, Dr. Ramaswamy, can uh, you uh, spare another few minutes to pursue some of these leads? Uh, sure. Because I, I would love to minutes. continue the conversation. Uh, we're speaking sure. with Vivek Ramaswamy, who is uh, all of a sudden one of the big three in terms of polling uh, for the Republican nomination for President of the United States. And he has been. Uh, more specific with what uh, some people view as a radical platform. So what would the Ramaswamy administration look like that would be different from the Trump administration? Because, uh, again, President Trump, the prohibitive front runner, uh, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire, which are going to be crucial, will continue the conversation for a few minutes more. Uh, with the man of the hour, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, a uh, very successful entrepreneur, a uh, graduate of Yale Law School and Harvard College, and uh, a um, uh, an outsider, if there certainly is one, running for president of the United States. We'll be right back. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's an honor to talk to you because I think you get the best talk show in the, in the United States. Thank uh, you. I agree. This is The Michael Medved Show. A few minutes more with Vivek Ramaswamy, who uh, is a candidate for president of the United States. He's actually one of the big three candidates for president right now. 
uh, together with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and uh, the former president, Donald J. Trump. I just asked you right before the break, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'll call you Vivek. Um, I just asked you about your differences from President Trump. If you were elected president, uh, what would be different about your priorities in the White House from what uh, President Trump has indicated would be his priorities? I think my priorities are similar, but my effectiveness in going even is what distinguishes me. The deep state was something Trump talked a lot about. He put the likes of Betsy DeVos on top of the U.S. Department of Education. I've said that these agencies that should not exist, I will shut them down. He built a wall on the southern border. I think that was a step in the right direction. There are now Mexican drug cartel-financed tunnels running underneath that wall. What I've said I would do is use the military to secure our own southern border and seal that Swiss cheese of a southern border that we have. You know, Trump didn't touch issues like affirmative action that was created by executive order by Lyndon Johnson. I said I would take a line and cross that through. So in many ways, I am going far further with the America First agenda than Trump did. But I think I'm also going to be able to unite the country in the process. And here's why. For whatever reason, Trump has a has an effect on about 30 percent of the people in this country when he's in the White House that causes them to become literally psychiatrically ill in some ways, disagreeing with things just because he said them. For whatever reason, I'm not having that effect on people. And I think if we go further, if we're doing it based on moral foundations and first principles, and I do think that setting that national character, that character of leadership, is half the job of the U.S. president that's perhaps even more important than just the individual policy planks. And so that gives you a sense for where I'm similar, but also where I'm a little different. Do you think uh, looking at uh, President Trump as one of the other choices that people have on on their ballots with the primaries and the caucuses coming up uh do you think that uh he should work to try to settle some of the charges against him uh or do you believe that uh the potential of having uh four different sets of um major indictments uh really should not be a factor in this race I think the government should drop the charges against him is the answer to that question. And so I just think it's a dangerous precedent in this country for the party in power to use police force to arrest its political opponents. And I say this as somebody who is polling a third and rising rapidly. It would be easier for me. Trump, we're not in this race. But the reality is that I don't want to win this election by the federal police state eliminating my competition. I want to win it by convincing the voters of this country that I'm the best choice for them to take this country forward. That's how we do things in the United States of America. At least it should be. And I think that we set an awful precedent if these prosecutors any way in impeding his ability to compete in this election. Uh, do you um, um, have any consideration uh, about who your potential vice presidential running mate would be? And would you consider be joining uh, either DeSantis or Trump or another nominee as the vice presidential candidate? 
No, I'm running to be the president, and I'm running to lead a national revival as Reagan did in 1980. I am giving thought to the kinds of people who would not only fill the vice president slot for me, but key cabinet positions, even positions beyond the cabinet, like the Office of Personnel Management or the Office of Management and Budget. These are critical positions in the federal government. And I've given a lot of thought to the types of people we're going to want. Here's a characteristic they're going to all share in common. They're going to be equally skeptical of the federal bureaucracy as I am. They're going to be equally willing to see through my anti-bureaucracy vision of hiring over 75% of the federal employee headcount, of actually shutting down agencies that shouldn't exist, of standing for the Constitution. In the vice president role, sets to mind, especially somebody who has knowledge in areas of foreign policy that predate my own. My background's in business. I'm a successful businessman. I've built multi-billion dollar businesses. I know how to people, and I have a strong vision for what I want to see out of our foreign policy. But I'm also going to rely on people who bring knowledge bases that I don't have. That's part of how we build an effective top team in leaving this federal federal bureaucratic apparatus that we're going to mostly shut down. And speaking of foreign policy, right now there is a uh, unprecedented crisis in in Israel with a national division regarding the role of the Supreme Court. Uh, President Biden has uh, been criticized, um, it seems to me, appropriately for intrusion in uh, Israeli domestic affairs. Uh, What would be your change in focus concerning the Middle East and the issues there? Well, look, I don't think it's the U.S. president's job to meddle in what is a complex domestic issue about separation of powers domestically in Israel. And to the contrary, I think that the Israeli people should self-determine through their process, their ordained process of how they settle their domestic differences, just like we wouldn't want other countries meddling in our domestic affairs either. And if you're President Biden... I hate to break the news, but you have bigger problems to worry about in your own country, including about problems relating to executive overreach through the executive powers and the separation of powers in this country that I think deserve greater attention than meddling in somebody else's foreign affairs. I do think that when it comes to the Middle East, I mean, look, as it relates to Israel policy, Trump took a great step forward with the Abraham Accords. I would take that even further to the next level, Abraham Accords 2.0. Bring Saudi Arabia in, bring Oman in, bring Qatar, bring even Indonesia in. Abandon this historical constraint that somehow we have to settle the Palestine issue before we address peace in the Middle East and prosperity in the Middle East more broadly. And I think Israel being linked in with its partners in a productive and constructive way in the Middle East actually avoids the need for continued and perpetual U.S. engagement, which I think is good for Israel and good for the United States and good for prosperity and peace in the Middle East. Speaking of prosperity and peace, your parents immigrated to this country and uh, your family has has been a great benefit to this country. If you look at the jobs you've created and um, uh, basically your impact economically and uh, otherwise civically, uh, should we make it easier for people to immigrate legally to the United States? the right people who can contribute to our country? The right people, absolutely, yes. The people who can actually help us with a skills shortage that we have in this country, and also people who have, and I'm glad you mentioned it, 
civic commitments to this country. But if you check both of those boxes, meet both of those criteria, have actual skill sets and an ability to make real economic contributions to this country and actual civic commitments to this country, that you believe in the ideals that this nation was founded on, that you've taken the time to learn about them and pass them on to your children in this country, then absolutely that form of merit-based immigration I unapologetically embrace. I'm a hardliner when it comes to putting an end to illegal migration across our southern border, along with the drugs and the other problems that come with it. But when it comes to legal immigration, I think it's a mistake for Republicans to shy away and say we want arbitrary caps. To the contrary, merit-based immigration, if executed correctly, and it will be in my administration, that's going to be a boon for this country and for economic growth and also for a revival of our national spirit. Speaking of revival, if this economy turns around, as increasing numbers of people expect it will, how do you beat Joe Biden if you're the nominee? Well, I think the economy is actually struggling in ways that the numbers don't tell the story on. It's true the unemployment rate's actually relatively low right now, 3-point-something percent, and he touts that number. The real problem is that we have too many jobs in this country that are actually vacant. We have way more jobs than we do have human beings in this country. The top obstacle for any business to grow today is finding qualified employees to fill those vacancies, which is why GDP growth, economic growth itself, is actually at a relative low. Less than 1.5% annualized is what we're tracking for right now. We've grown at over 4-plus percent GDP growth for most of our national history. And so I don't think that using yesterday's kinds of figures relating to strictly just looking at unemployment as a figure, when a lot of people have exited the workforce that don't count in those unemployment numbers, and that's part of the reality for why many businesses are unable to fill their vacant positions, the economy absolutely is a problem, and I do not believe it is turning around. I think that it's a false projection of numbers that the Biden administration is using as an optical illusion. Vivek Ramaswamy. You can reach him and get more information at Vivek, that's V-I-V-E-K, 2024.com. 